Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. This is pretty much pop, a culture podcast fighting back against fake news like the moon landing or Tom Hanks getting the virus instead of being in jail or Donald Trump having been hatched from a black putrefying egg. Today we're talking about conspiracy theories as entertainment, what their appeal is, why people pass them around, whether they're different in kind or degree from the propaganda that can seep into even mainstream entertainment. I'm Mark Linsenmeyer and I either am or am not a lizard person. That's a 50% chance. I'm Erica Spires in New York City, and I have been staying healthy during this COVID because of Alex Jones' super silver whitening toothpaste. And I'm Brian Rothschild, and I... Oh, shit. Did I say that? Hurt. And I'm Brian Hurt. Definitely not Rothschild. And I'm Al Baker, speaking from Leeds in the UK, and I cannot melt steel beams. Welcome, Al. So we had been wanting to do something with you for a long time. Can you tell us a little about the stuff that you do in your day job that make you uniquely qualified to come and talk about this exciting topic with us? I am uniquely something. I'm a recently escaped philosopher, and I have recently started working for a company called Logically. They're a tech startup, and they basically develop technologies, techniques, and all kinds of systems for fighting misinformation, including and especially conspiracy theories. That is really cool. Did you ever think you were going to find yourself doing this? I never thought that I would find a job in the private sector which made such good use of the skills I developed for like six years as a philosophy grad student and then a postdoc. It is really amazing how useful general principles of rational thought can translate into areas like the tech world and journalism. I got very, very lucky in that exactly the kind of job like a more appropriate job than I ever thought would exist for me happened to come up at exactly the time I needed one. And just a quick follow-up question, is it MI6 that runs that, or is it the CIA, the Illuminati, just trying to get a handle on who exactly is running the show over there? Opinions do vary, so we have plenty of comments on the stuff that we put out, we get a lot of complaints. Opinions vary as to whether we are run by Nahendra Modi, or whether we may be run by Bill Gates. I mean, we're definitely in league with the CIA. We just published an interview with the CIA agent, and how could we possibly have done that if we weren't in their pocket? So we're corrupt for all comers. When did that start happening? When did just pure information start being taken as, well, clearly somebody's in this for the wrong reasons? I think it's kind of natural. So a lot of what we do logically revolves around fact-checking and ways that we can do fact-checking in a more effective, maybe larger scale way than the traditional news outlets currently handle it. And I think just putting yourself in the business of deciding what's true or deciding what's plausible just kind of invites that kind of skepticism. Because I think there's immediately a kind of backfire effect in that people think, well, who the hell are you to tell me what's more reasonable or not? Right. And that invites a discrediting attitude straight away. I don't know if it's something that can be helped. I think it is something which has been underestimated by people who are kind of in this field. 
like journalists in particular seem to think that people ought to be welcoming of being told that they're wrong. And maybe they ought to be, but they're generally not. I think you can trace it back pretty far, probably to France. There's a cave painting with a couple stick figures and an antelope, and someone said, there's no way that antelope was that big. So as soon as someone started writing anything down as information, someone else was doubting it. I think it is human nature. And I wonder if some of what's going on might be a necessary response to what might have been a cult of overpraise of expertise, of that there's a skepticism that has developed in, oh, you know, reporters can, even, you know, well-trained reporters who have things in their methodology to make sure that they don't report stuff that is not, you know, multiply sourced. When they get something wrong, then it's very easy to then doubt the whole edifice. And, you know, scientists, in fact, we did a partially examined life episode on scientists as basically pseudo-religious figures in the way that they would hand down information from on high. As soon as that idea gets out there, then of course you're going to have skepticism. No, no, scientists are often wrong. So does that mean the whole edifice of professionalism in science and journalism is garbage? To me, obviously no, but like you can see how that idea might catch on. It's been, I think, fairly well observed that a plausible cause of the rise of misinformation, I mean, in tangent with social media and the fact that more information is available to everybody than at any time in human history. One of the proximate causes of what we might call the information crisis is that the education that we have, at least up until college, and if you don't take any kind of science classes or social science classes with a focus on research methods, arguably even past college graduation, people don't really get a very clear understanding of how scientific knowledge is acquired, how it's accrued, how the process works. As you say, Mark, the impression, the kind of common impression that a lot of people leave at least school with is the idea that science is a set of established truths which are beyond question. And so if an institution which calls itself scientific then turns out to have made some kind of mistake, it does open up that kind of general criticism of, well, science is supposed to be about certainty. How can these scientists call themselves that if they're liable to make mistakes? Whereas obviously, well, I say obviously, but it seems like the big thing I think that people like that are missing about science and about other institutions with good knowledge gathering and knowledge production processes is that they are networks with systems designed to minimize uh, fallibility without ruling it out altogether. No one who's ever worked in scientific research or academia thinks that academics don't make mistakes. Not even that bad stuff doesn't get published. It's that we try and develop systems where the risk of that is minimized. Right. So I guess asking when did this start happening is not necessarily a great question because like clearly there's something new that's happened, yes, with our information age and our misinformation age. But also it's that deeper question of when does it happen within a human, right? And I think when I was growing up, you touched on a really good point, Al. There was something that happened in college. It still is in my brain. You know, I always feel like I was fairly science-based in my thinking. And then I was taking a science class in college where we had to write papers about an alternative energy source. And my group did one on wind turbines and wind power. And we had our paper all lined out. We had our presentation. And before we turned it in, our teacher said, well, where's your source? And I can't remember which source it was. It was something from the government, though. And the teacher said, okay, well, what kind of interest does the government have in putting out this information? 
always ask yourself that question, no matter if it's a government or an independent publication, there's some sort of sway, no matter what you're looking at. Erica, I was a little flip when I was talking about that question of when this happens, talking about the antelope and the people, but you know, there's something to it, which is, of course, if I'm in that cave, I can go out and look for myself because I have the same observation skills as the person who drew it. And there's a certain point where we've hit, and I think it was centuries ago, but certainly now, even if something is falsifiable, it's not falsifiable by me because I don't have the scientific skills or the tools or I don't know the math to do all that falsifying. You know, what I think is really seductive about some of these conspiracy theories and the people who participate in them is that they're always able to say, well, I'm not going to believe it until I see it. And to say, well, this isn't something that could be seen. It's something that has to be inferred. It has to be supported or not supported by information. There's that disconnect of really where we are with science to say, well, there must be some dark matter because it explains the amount of mass in the universe. It's like I could really see the appeal of saying, well, you can't prove any of this, so I'm not going to believe it. You're not going to show me this dark matter. We're not going back to the first millisecond of the Big Bang and I, to see that there wasn't a great expansion or there wasn't whatever it was. It's easier to believe in a conspiracy because your immediate world around you supports it all. Whereas to believe in the science, to accept the science, really requires having some faith in the observations and the conclusions drawn by others. You know what? I'm going to disagree quite dramatically with your take there. Ooh, hot takes. Yeah, I know. Gloves come off immediately. What's super interesting about the way a lot of conspiracies, particularly recent conspiracies, especially kind of the more fantastical ones have spread around, is that they do couch themselves in the language of science and the language of scientific expertise. What they remove themselves from or what they distance themselves from are scientific institutions. So you see in the 5G conspiracies and so on, a lot of the messages that have been doing the rounds, particularly on WhatsApp, places like that, it's always like someone who has some kind of senior scientific role or someone with a senior scientific institution, some senior unnamed senior medical researcher at John Hopkins University. And they spill out a load of pseudoscientific nonsense, but couch very much in the language of satellite. They'll talk about molecules, they'll talk about radiation, they'll talk about mutation, enough to give the impression that the science backs them, even though the scientific institutions may not. So I think that respect for science does exist in the conspiracy community. And I think it's kind of essential that it does in a lot of ways, because in order to be persuasive these days to anyone, you have to leverage scientific inquiry to some extent, because it's just so commonly accepted as kind of the most effective knowledge gathering technique that we have. So, I mean, there's clearly something that you say in the way they understand scientific inquiry is clearly wrong or at least inconsistent. But I wouldn't be remotely surprised if a lot of conspiracy theorists were also very excited about things like dark matter. I'm sure they're very excited about things like quantum mechanics, even though I'm sure they also don't understand how those things work. I feel like they are until it's not convenient to them. I think I might be a little too close to the flat earth because I watched that Netflix documentary Behind the Curve. And they do scientific experiments and the results support their belief in a flat earth, then they point to, like, we've done our own science. And if it supports a round earth, they say, well, we did our experiment wrong or there's some other influence we're not taking into account. And that's not scientific inquiry. It looks like it, but that ain't it. It has yet enough of the trappings to make you feel good or to give yourself credibility, but something's only falsifiable if you 
except that it has been falsified when you've just done it. And so, well, if you're never going to, then we're back to something that's just a belief. That seems to be like the huge disconnect, right? Like in that same class that I took, we had another portion of it where we had to talk about the theory of evolution versus the theory of intelligent design. And somebody I was sitting close to wrote this paper about intelligent design and was using the scientific method to prove her point. And I didn't know she was the one who had written it. And they talked about this paper. And they're like, what does everybody think? And I had some like very anti that paper chat about it. Like I just immediately was like, oh, really? I mean, it doesn't even, and I just went on. And then they're like, well, actually it was this girl who wrote it. And she was sitting right next to me. And I was like, I'm sorry. And I felt so awkward. But at the same time, I was like, how can you believe that? So clearly, like we were both using similar methods. I can't remember now, outside of the fact that I just know in my heart that intelligent design is ridiculous, what it was that I thought was wrong with the paper in particular. How do you then go about it when people from both sides are showing their own data? And that's a problem I see on the internet right now, a lot with you know COVID or whether it's with Black Lives Matter. You show some data, somebody else shows some data of something else. Well, it seems like in that case, you could just say, by just knowing some basic information about what science is and what constitutes a theory and the idea of falsifiability, I was interested to read somewhere that the notion of conspiracy theories, I think, was thought up by the philosopher Karl Popper, who's the guy that put forth the notion that what makes a statement scientific is that it is potentially falsifiable. That it was the same guy that came up with both of those things. So you could cut off some people who are especially ignorant with just basic stuff like that. I have a conspiracy theory friend on Facebook who was confusing the dark web with the deep web and saying, you got to understand that when you do a Google search, you're only finding just a small amount of stuff. The vast majority of the stuff is on the dark web. That's where you got to find all the real information. <laughs> I was like, the dark web is the small thing where people like illegally trade things and hire assassins and stuff that maybe has been chased off of Google by active, you know, removal of misinformation. Whereas the deep web is like every database that needs a password to get into. And so of course Google can't. So just something basic like that, you know, is another good example of, you know, how I could kind of cut that off. But it always seems, despite that, that there's a point at which your expertise runs out and you're deferring to the authorities you respect and your opponent who believes in conspiracy theories does not believe in those authorities. And so you're just like, oh, it's just a he said, she said. That's the thing that keeps coming up when I was doing some reading and listening in preparation for this is the idea of echo chambers and that the way conspiracy theories spread and perhaps the reason why conspiracy theories seem to be more popular these days than ever is because our technological and media ecosystems allow us to create much more efficient echo chambers than we ever could previously. And because an echo chamber's main effect is in shaping the sources that you trust and the sources that you don't and hardening those attitudes, that's precisely how these kinds of ideas can spread so efficiently. Because you're absolutely right, Mark, it comes down eventually to credibility of sources. And if you're talking to somebody who doesn't think that the New York Times or The Guardian or NASA is are credible institutions, it seems like you've got a much bigger problem on your hands than just trying to convince somebody that a particular fact is right or wrong. Mark, I do agree that you run out of information, but if you have this viewpoint that you're willing to concede that everything you know might not be correct, just basing it on the best information you have, 
and someone else has a rooted belief system that they're never going to concede on, you kind of run out of belief first, right? If you really get down to the roots of it, like I think it was in a Richard Dawkins book talking about how most atheists, when pushed to it, will say that they still have that last agnostic piece. Well, if I'm given some new information, I'll believe something different. Whereas people who are fundamental believers are not going to change, regardless of whatever new information they might be given. But aren't most conspiracy theorists skeptics? Like they take themselves to be skeptics. And I'm, I'm talking about at any level, just in an ordinary political interaction between me, an anti-Trump person and a pro-Trump person. I was in this forum that someone was saying, can't you liberals just accept that you might be wrong? That what the MSM, the mainstream media is feeding you might be wrong. Can't you be independent minded enough? And I'm like, from my perspective, the alternative is to believe the propaganda that is being pushed specifically by the Trump administration. <laughs> Can't you believe that all these fact checkers and stuff actually that those are the corrupt ones? That it's their self interest in promoting themselves and their liberal agenda and their homosexual agenda or whatever the thing is. There seems to be an asymmetry there to me, but you know, as far as the psychology goes, everybody thinks they're a skeptic. That really rings true to me, Mark. I won't keep going back to this documentary. Again, it's really fresh in my mind because I just watched it this morning. But there's a woman who's a flat earther who was being accused of being a CIA agent. And she was going on and on about how ridiculous that was. And so she's playing in two different directions. The conspiracy she believes in, she will support. And the conspiracies people believe about her, she's trying to show how ridiculous they are. It seems really inconsistent. And that's a good observation that everyone thinks they're a skeptic, they're just really selective about what they're skeptical about or whatever fits within their worldview or that fits their vision of themselves, their ego. I think people have huge inconsistencies in their belief systems, and I'm sure I do too. I'm not trying to be superior here, but I think to think that everyone is one sort of way all the time just doesn't track with how people behave. I think this may be a good moment to kind of recognize that a lot of the Research around conspiracy theories points to the idea that everybody is disposed to conspiratorial thinking to some degree. I wondered if anyone has any or wants to own up to anything that sounds vaguely like a conspiracy theory that you kind of buy or believe in. I'm trying to think of one. I honestly, I'll confess to it if I have it. I've got one, and it comes from listening to a very good podcast a little while ago. It was at 538, and they were talking about conspiracy theories on there, and they had this professor on who was trying to establish conspiracy thinking across the political spectrum. Something I thought was kind of odd was one of the conspiracies that he outlined as an example and said, well, this shows that liberals are broadly just as susceptible to conspiracy theories as those on the far right, was the idea that the 1% is deliberately engaging in conspiratorial activity to try and hoard wealth for themselves. And this professor said that that counted as a conspiracy theory in the same way as a lot of other conspiracies. And I thought, well, if that's a conspiracy theory, I kind of believe it, right? Because that seems like a plausible political reality to me. So I suppose people who are on the other end of the political spectrum, to me, might think that that belief, because I have no specific evidence of, apart from a few cases of proven corruption, I have no specific evidence that this is an ongoing thing. I just think it kind of explains the way that certain elements of British and American politics work. So am I being conspiratorial by holding that view? That kind of fits in with, you know, there was a Netflix documentary called The Family that I watched. And there were times when I was watching that I was like, I feel like this is conspiracy theory-esque. 
because I was trying to be as objective as I could watching it. And there were some things they were talking about that were wrong. And I was like, well, I can see, because as a person who was raised Southern Baptist, I was like, well, I can see how some of that stuff is just like, you're just trying to be a good person and accept anybody who is trying to do the right thing and trying to help them along. But then the more you watch it and you see how far that corruption goes, then yeah, I started to buy into the fact that maybe there is possibly this overarching, like the family that gets into the political lives of everyone worldwide, which does kind of sound conspiracy theory-esque. So I guess that one I would kind of believe. I mean, we are also living in the aftermath of revelations about the, the way the Catholic Church has behaved for much of the last century. The revelations there are astonishing, and they are most definitely conspiratorial, and some of the influence that they seem to have had definitely reaches the realms, had it not been proved, would definitely reach the realms of what we would call a conspiracy theory. It's super interesting I think whether conspiracy thinking is true or is bad or not simply turns on kind of the accident of whether the conspiracy turns out to be true. I'm going to cop to one, but I know it's not falsifiable. So I'm just going with it anyway, because it just seems reasonable to me and I believe it. And that is that the two-party American political system is largely populated with people who have no actual political moral beliefs. They just want to keep it going and switch it back and forth and do their thing and stay in power. And being out of power is sometimes just as good as being in power. And I don't think everyone's unprincipled. And I think there's some people truly believe what they say. And I think some just are playing the game. Now, can I prove that? No. Do I have any really good reason to think that? Well, a little bit of anecdotal evidence, but not that much. And if I, you know, live another 40 years and we still have Republicans and Democrats, it's not any more, it's not really evidence. It's just, you know, more stuff happening that supports what I already think, but it, I'm no closer to actually having proved what I think. It's just, it colors my view of a lot of things. Let's stop for a moment for an advertisement. Now, if you're like me, you eat food. And you probably don't like shopping for food that much. And you definitely don't want to be going out on special trips to get ingredients you're missing during a freaking pandemic. So I'm recommending that you try Sunbasket, which delivers healthy, delicious meals straight to your door. Everything is pre-portioned, ready to prep and cook. In as little as 15 minutes, you can have a dinner full of organic produce, clean ingredients. You can give dietary preferences to make it just vegetarian or gluten-free or paleo or Mediterranean or whatever. No matter how much experience or how little experience you have in the kitchen, each week Sunbasket offers a wide range of recipes to choose from, like say hoisin steak strip lettuce cups with pickled daikon and carrots, roasted salmon with miso glazed eggplant, or black bean tostadas diablo with cabbage slaw and guacamole. You can order any recipes from across the menu, skip a week whenever you need to, and Sunbasket facilities are employing the highest level of food and employee safety during this pandemic. Right now, Sunbasket is offering $35 off your order when you go to sunbasket.com slash pretty and enter promo code pretty at checkout. That's sunbasket.com slash P-R-E-T-T-Y. Enter promo code pretty at checkout for $35 off your order. Sunbasket.com pretty, enter code pretty. Now let's get back to it. Yeah, it's disturbing that on the one hand, the line between conspiracies and just speculations about stuff that might be happening is not a solid one. That, you know, payola in the music industry or just any kind of corruption within organizations or do the various supposed competitors in capitalist systems get together and collude for price fixing and things or keeping labor down? Like these things probably happen, <laughs> you know, unless you're actually part of that industry, you don't know how often they happen. You don't know how deep the corruption goes, but it's just sort of natural 
wouldn't you assume that people would in general be doing what they can to retain their power to whatever? And on the other hand, in listening to these various podcasts about conspiracy theories and hearing all these experts talking about the psychology of them, they really do seem like a hardcore conspiracy theorist. It's like being in a cult that it's not like just speculating. Like, I don't really know what's going on out there. And, you know, that's partly how politically it's used. Like just to undermine, you may have very firm beliefs against Trump or against whatever the thing is, but I'm going to put all this information out there that will just make you realize how secondhand all that knowledge is, how thirdhand, a fourthhand, and doubt yourself. So maybe everybody is just as corrupt. You know, I think there's that kind of role that propaganda, you know, one of the tools that propagandists use. But the hardcore, you know, from reading about these people who are really invested in it, they're not just skeptics. You can't just, even though they might claim to be, you can't just feed them the correct information that'll just harden them, that you have to treat it like an intervention, that you have to treat it exactly like as if they were a member of some extremist cult. And, you know, they are kind of dangerous in that way, that pretty much everybody that is involved with an extremist cult that is likely to go out and commit a terrorist act or something, probably part of the psychological tools that are at work in engaging in that way are, I believe, in some kind of conspiracy theories. Right, there's a community aspect to it. There's a countercultural aspect to it, right? I think if you were a 5G-er and all of a sudden the government came out and said, oh yeah, it turns out 5G is causing coronavirus, you'd be sort of disappointed. What you had that was special and what connected you to your peers and what set your enemies apart from you is no longer a thing. Your big personality trait or the thing that you use in place of having a personality, like wearing a snake <laughs> around your neck, is suddenly gone from you. And <laughs> There are other ways to make friends in this world, but I mean, it's certainly having something that you share with specific people and don't with a lot of other people is a special thing. Can I use that as a segue to the way that I phrased this topic at the beginning? You know, we're a pop culture podcast. There are lots of serious political podcasts that are dealing with this issue of conspiracy theories. And, you know, I just was outlining how dangerous some of the information I was getting from these. But the way that you just put it in terms of developing a sense of community, like I really wanted, sort of in line with my cynical take in our local news episode, I wanted to analyze this in part in terms of entertainment, not making the sharp distinction that, oh, there are some people that theorize about Elvis and aliens and they're just entertaining themselves. And then there are these dangerous QAnon people. But no, even the dangerous QAnon people, the vast majority of them, if they don't take their beliefs as actionable, if they're not going to go shoot up a pizza place or something, because of these beliefs about Pizzagate, the way that we take in information that we become a fan of something in saying this is like being in a cult, again, you could say being a super fan of K-pop or whatever is also like being, maybe in a different way, like being in a cult. So I wanted to explore what this idea that maybe people get into these things, just they think they're just like people who are serious news fans, but don't actually act on it. They're not activists. They're not going to really change their vote. They've already decided long ago. It's another thing of being a fan of, but it makes you feel superior to people who are a fan of Game of Thrones. But it's just as fantastical, and your day-to-day interaction with it is very much like a diehard Game of Thrones fan being a fan of QAnon or whatever. I think we can usefully distinguish the harmful and cultish types of fan groups from the relatively harmless, say, K-pop fan bases by the different kinds of echo chambers that you produce. So say if you're a fan, someone tell me the name of a K-pop group, because I just don't know. (laughs) And we did an episode near that, but yet I still don't know any. (laughs) I'm going to make one up. I'm going to see if it was... EXO. 
EXO, Blackpink. Okay, you're not punking me, right? This is a real... No, it's real. <laughs> so say you're a rabid fan of Blackpink and you've got a Reddit community and you're all fans of Blackpink. Now, obviously, you're going to be in an echo chamber. It's probably going to be a relatively porous one. You imagine that there will be a variety of political beliefs within the Blackpink fan group. But it will still be an echo chamber in that there will be sources that you will distrust because sources that say K-pop sucks or that say Blackpink is overrated, right? You're going to distrust those sources on the basis that they don't accord with the common beliefs that you share as a group. But that is, I think, in the relatively harmless space. And I think the reason you can point to, as opposed to something like something more cultish, we think about QAnon or Scientology or what have you, the echo chamber there becomes not just about taking away your trust in sources beyond those considered acceptable by the echo chamber. The kind of cultish part, I think, is in your kind of systematically removing any faculty for independently criticizing the value of the sources that the echo chamber is pointing to as reliable. So when things become cultish and therefore problematic, if we're in our Blackpink fan group, it's unlikely that people would push or take seriously or kind of countenance the idea that the music industry as a whole is corrupt and out to get K-pop bands. And so music reviewers are constantly pouring scorn on them. So it would be very, very difficult to hold the line in that kind of community where you could kind of systematically discredit a relevant institution, which ought to have some kind of bear on the subject that you're interested in. Whereas something like QAnon, something like Scientology, you would be much more likely to, uh, as a part of belonging to that echo chamber, be less able to kind of systematically reflect on the kinds of sources which you considered acceptable. I feel like if I were a Nickelback fan, I would really think that there is a concerted conspiracy against Nickelback of how they got memefied. I was trying to get the overlap there, and I think you found it, Mark. That was fucking brilliant. Thank you, because you're right. There really is. I knew there had to be something in music. It just wasn't Blackpink. It's good to kind of have these two things to look at side by side. I don't know if relationships are destroyed over what band you think is great or is terrible, that you're not cutting people out of your lives or feeling like you have to proselytize. And that's the only thing you can talk about with someone until they either agree with you or give up on that relationship because they just can't take it anymore. Mark's musical taste was terrible when we were growing up and we're still friends and that's great. I mean, it's still terrible, but... And we are still friends, maybe not anymore. I'll let you talk, Mark. I will defend my Kenny G to the death. But that really is a thing. And it's not just conspiracy theories, right? There was a big thing about the first Thanksgiving after Trump was elected and how all these holidays were ruined. And it doesn't have to do with conspiracy theories, but that seems to be a thing of isolating into groups with, again, more of these QAnon type ones where it's more about fundamental beliefs than maybe taste. And so that's where it gets to be less just a pop culture type fandom and more of a way of living your life. So I think there is some difference, Mark. I mean, I think we've outlined some of them. I mean, there there are a lot of similarities, but some fundamental differences too. But I think even within conspiracy theories, right, you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist who becomes cultish about it, right? I think we love gossip. As humans, we love gossip. And conspiracy theories become popular oftentimes because it's just fun to talk about stuff that we all want to speculate, you know, HBO just came out with a new Natalie Wood documentary. And I have to admit, I'm interested in seeing it and seeing if there's any new information. There's probably not new information on her death necessarily, but 
I don't know, they put this documentary out and it kind of makes me want to see who was involved and, and what's uncovered. And, you know, whether it's that or Elvis or Area 51, I think we all enjoy a little bit of the gossip element of it. My feeling just like interacting with my Facebook conspiracy theory friend was that he didn't necessarily believe everything that he was saying. It really is something that like, I'm not sure what to believe. I'm a skeptical person, but these things are kind of cool. Just think about this. Like, I think that maybe that there's a sense of play that's purposefully ambiguous so that it can sediment, you know, if you go, as you go farther down the rabbit hole, then you take it more and more seriously and maybe then you become radicalized. But there's definitely a lot of room for lighter approaches. The way particularly far-right conspiracy theorists and kind of meme generators who spread or are involved in these kinds of conspiracies operate is by weaponizing that kind of irony or sarcasm. So yeah, you put this horrible stuff out there and you can defend it as being an offensive piece of comedy or just in bad taste or whatever else. But the effect is still to put these ideas out there in the ether. And it's an interesting question about whether it even matters what the intent of the person spreading those kinds of harmful conspiracies is. So is there a harmless way of engaging with this as a hobby or is because engaging with it as a hobby almost necessarily means helping spread this information around? Is it just never going to be okay? Is it just something to do with the many crises in which we currently find ourselves that are relevant to this? Does it now suddenly feel unacceptable to be casually interested in conspiracy theories in a way that people have been for ages, right? The X-Files was a thing JFK movie was a thing throughout the whole 90s. And now exactly what we were talking about just before, we've got all these incredible range of true crime investigative docudramas, which are all incredibly conspiratorially minded. Right. So yeah, turning to one of the articles that you shared with us, this COVID-19 and the turn to magical thinking, it says that people turn to magic when they feel powerless. Soldiers may repeatedly practice mastery of their weapons, but they know there is still a strong element of chance in whether they live or die in combat. And so they also pray, wear talismans, and develop superstitions about weapons, clothes, or routines that bring luck. I mean, I know this definitely happens in sports and in theater and wherever Like people want to do things in a particular order or they have a particular pair of underwear that they feel like they need to wear. But how does that kind of behavior necessarily link specifically into conspiracy theories? Well, I'll throw out that it's irrational maybe to have some of these thoughts to whether it's the volcano ash that kills the virus. But if you can get some people to believe it with you, then it seems like it makes more sense. If you can, I mean, that's this is how religions form, right? It's a bunch of people believing the same unlikely thing. I mean, I thought that article, it made a lot of sense to me of, of how these things come into being for sure. How we make a logical, or we seem to think it's a logical leap from something's happening and I want to control it. So therefore, I'm going to come up with this thing to explain it or say that if I don't do this thing, then everybody else is against me. And maybe and sometimes it's coincidence or weird little things that it's all the, the proof you need for you. I inhaled some volcano ash and I got better. And post hoc ergo propter hoc, it's like, so what? So that happened to you and now it's proof. And so you tell it to other people and maybe they start having confirmation bias. And well, you know, gosh, come to think of it, I inhaled that too, and I feel better. And the next thing you know. Essential oils all over again. <laughs> Here's an interesting way I think that connects to the importance of conspiracy theories to pop culture. Again, it's very often um, pointed out that conspiracy theories are one of the benefits of believing in a conspiracy theory is that you get to believe in a malign 
group of people who are deliberately making things bad, right? So the bad things don't have to happen. If we just got rid of all these bad people who are making all the bad things happen, then things would be broadly okay. So one interesting way to put the psychological willingness to believe in conspiracy theories is it maybe, I mean, partly magical thinking, clearly, because some of it involves like taking these implausible preventative measures to cure diseases or what have you. But a part of it is also this kind of narrativizing about the world. You know, you postulate a big evil organization so that you can tell yourself a plausible story about how they might be toppled or about the evil that exists in the world. One interesting way that conspiracy thinking matches up to pop culture is that it draws on our culturally informed understanding about the way that evil arises and the way that bad things get solved in the end. The stories that we have, the stories that we tell ourselves, there's always bad people doing the bad stuff. Like very rarely do the things in movies or TV shows or books, usually the bad stuff that happens is a result of a bad actor. And defeating that bad actor is the key to getting rid of the bad stuff. So if we postulate the bad actor, then we get to have a narrative understanding of the world, which is maybe more comforting because we know that if we tell ourselves a story, that there's going to be you know, a satisfying conclusion. So do you think this could change with pop culture going the way it is? We have fewer stories, at least television shows in particular, where there's a clear hero and a clear villain. We're getting a lot of anti-heroes. I don't know if this is just a trend or if this is something that's actually changing in our world because we realize there's a more complex answer for things. Do you think that we might find the popularity of things like conspiracy theories going down or the popularity of cults going down when we start to realize that people are not all good or bad? I think it's a really interesting question, but I actually think the turn to a general cynicism in pop culture. So if you contrast like the general positivity of the 90s, you could reasonably call the turn to cynicism, particularly after the 2008 crash. Everything got miserable for a long time. It's still not got any better. Uh, it's definitely not got any better. One, I think, important cultural moment in that period was the kind of collective realization that a lot of the traditional good and evil narratives that we've heard about the world that kind of arose during the sec from the Second World War to the Cold War and beyond were largely bullshit. And that understanding the world in terms of these pure good and pure evil things is not a helpful way of understanding the world. And I think there was a large cultural realization of that as the kind of liberal consensus came crashing down around us. So it's possible that things could go the way you suggest and that one might hope that something that would arise from that is just a more nuanced understanding of human actors and say, hey, maybe all the good people aren't all good, so you shouldn't expect your own country to necessarily be a shining beacon of anything in particular. But maybe the bad people aren't all bad either, so maybe some, they have good reasons for some of the things we do. Maybe it leads to a more nuanced understanding of the world. But maybe what happens is that people just think, well, it's all bullshit anyway, so why not believe that everyone is just as corrupt as I want to believe they are? <laughs> I have a slightly different take on that, and that is with the loss of the traditional narrative with the clear protagonist and the clear antagonist, conspiracy theories are a way to actually still have those. Right? It's our outlet. You talked about making a narrative, L, and yeah, if there's going to be a narrative, I want to be the protagonist, clearly. right? No one wants to be Walter White, really. You know, I, I want to be the anti-hero. No, it's like there are no good guys left, but I can be one if I believe this theory. One of the super interesting things I heard in that podcast, which I didn't know before, was that conspiracy thinking is strongly linked to a narcissistic personality type. 
I think that is really illuminating for exactly the reasons you just mentioned, that one of the appeals of a conspiracy theory is that it gives you a chance to be the hero, right? You can be the one who's making the key discovery to out some grand conspiracy. And it also lets you kind of live in a world, if you're a narcissist, maybe, I mean, I don't really know what goes on in their heads, but one of the things about being a narcissist might be that you could plausibly think that maybe you'd be a pretty good world ruler, And given the resources of Bill Gates, maybe you would want to inject RFID tags into everybody and control the world. Maybe that's something that informs their thinking as well. They can think, well, if I was Bill Gates, I sure would be trying to use the 5G network to conquer the world somehow. So then is the answer to try to fix all of our narcissistic personalities? Uh, Get them all in therapy quickly. I think the inclusion of narcissism (laughs) as a diagnosis in the DSM is a conspiracy. (laughs) Said just like a narcissist. That's just me. That's just a DSM-5301.81. <laughs> you know, we haven't talked about the source of conspiracies and whether that even matters. Mm. Whether once mm. they get out of the hands of the people that created them. I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of the figures, you know, I think when people were theorizing about it's so terrible that Trump won. Who could beat him if we just had to, if a regular politician can't? Maybe Oprah, maybe Tom Hanks, maybe Bill Gates. And I don't think it's a coincidence that these end up being central figures in all this conspiracy talk. That points to me that probably some of this came from far right or Russian troll farms or whatever, you know, these things. But once they get out there, it's gossip. I would be really surprised if anybody has control of the content. It seems like if you're a propagandist using this as a technique, it's a little unsafe. You don't know actually what's going to, after people play telephone with your message, how it's going to end up. One of the things we do at Logically is track these kinds of misinformation campaigns. We have all sorts of fancy robots who can do this for us. And one of the really interesting things is it's very seldom clear whether the standard of MO of these kind of troll farms or Russian bot farms is to jump on existing craziness that people have independently come up with or whether they manufacture craziness specifically and then implant it in communities where they know it's likely to catch on. Maybe there's a difference of tactic, but I think it's super interesting that it seems like a lot of the very effective, effective for Russia essentially means disruptive in the biggest way possible. One of the most effective conspiracies that has certainly been helped to spread by the Russian misinformation machine is the 5G causes coronavirus conspiracy, which was not developed by that. Like, it's too perfect. No one could design this conspiracy theory. It is too good. It seems to have evolved organically from lots of different threads. And the kind of bad actors spotted that it had this kind of potential and pushed it. But it raises a really interesting question as to whether misinformation just by itself is harmful, or if it's only really harmful when it's used to bad purposes. I think we need to come up with a conspiracy and get it going and see how much harm it does, and then we'll know. One of the articles about the current, it's, uh, we're keeping a running list of hoaxes and misleading posts about the nationwide police brutality protests from BuzzFeed. So there are 48 of these things. You know, they're not all conspiracies, and a couple of them I had believed, like the whole Trump holding up a Bible, and look, there's a picture of Hitler holding up a Bible in the same way. Like, no, that is a fake Photoshop thing. So clearly, I think we could very easily come up with something like that, to Photoshop a thing, as long as you can figure out a Twitter account with enough followers, but that yet is not you. (laughs) So you're not completely staining your own credibility by releasing this. It doesn't seem like it'd be that hard. Getting back to actually to Al's question mark, and I think I can lay it on yours as well, 
the danger in misinformation just in general, or maybe what to do with yours, Mark, the example of the photos is like, what do you think the average person who believes it might do with that information? If I believe that about the Trump and Hitler photos, I'm just going to not vote for Trump the way I was already going to not vote for Trump, right? So like, how does that change anything? Whereas if you start talking about things that do or don't cause illness or prevent illness, it's not very difficult to see that you're going to have people, whether it's doing property damage to destroy 5G hardware, or if they're not going to vaccinate their children or do any of a number of things, it doesn't take a ton of imagination to see how some misinformation is fundamentally different from others. Not for people at the fringes who may want to go harm somebody or a political figure, but just sort of the middle of the road person who thinks this and they're going to make life choices based on this information. But don't you feel like things like Holocaust denial... Or likewise, denial of any of the mass shootings or, you know, the same Facebook friend of mine was spreading the thing about the whole George Floyd thing being a setup that like, oh, the guys work together at a bar. Clearly, either he's not dead or there are various versions of it. But even if you're not going to act on that, there's just something fundamentally indecent about having people deny the Holocaust, deny human tragedy, even if they're not going to be someone who is harassing the parents of the children shot in these things. So it does seem like there's more harm than merely what comes out of actionable. Oh, it's a different kind of harm. Agreed. So is there a moral problem with Dan Brown novels? Uh, I mean, people have definitely jumped on that train, right? So what can you do besides say this is historical fiction? There's two kinds of historical fiction. There's like there's plausible historical fiction and there's like historical fantastic fiction. So I'm a big fan of this guy, Robert Harris. He writes loads of historical fiction books. One is a trilogy of the life of Cicero, which I love. But the good thing about that is it's all plausible, right? There's all is plausible historical fiction. Something like Dan Brown books, where's that kind of literary garb and has that kind of literary style? So it's kind of not surprising in a way that the popularity of that book also led to the popularity of more like Vatican conspiracy theories. I guess it didn't hurt that those books were popular around the same time that the child abuse scandal was breaking everywhere. But having people more open, at least to the idea that there are grand religiously themed conspiracies is a foreseeable consequence of publishing those kind of books, even though they are fiction I mean, there's a whole other issue in that they're also just bad books in literary terms. So there's something wrong with them already. But is it a moral problem to indulge this kind of conspiratorial thinking in our entertainment because it opens people up to these kinds of thoughts? Yeah, I don't think so. I think that's just exactly recognizing what I was trying to get in formulating this topic, that there is something just fun about well, what if people are really doing this? And what if they're leaving clues all over and we just have to solve them and making the world in? And as long as, you know, you keep that, it's the same of any other kind of fantasy. I think to be crying out against that is just as misguided as complaining about Dungeons and Dragons as it's going to be like that Mazes and Monsters movie where the children are going to be wandering the streets killing homeless people because they think they're actually warriors or whatever. (laughs) Like, no. Man, we can't keep Tom Hanks out of this podcast. (laughs) In the case of the Dungeons and Dragons scare, it's not the players of Dungeons and Dragons who are making the mistake. It's people who don't understand Dungeons and Dragons who are making the mistake. Whereas in the, the Dan Brown case, it is fans of Dan Brown who are making the mistake. They're reading too much into the book. I just know that I've been able to use CERN in some crossword puzzles. So I think it was all worth it. 
I wouldn't have known about them otherwise. I'm going to agree with Mark on this. I think that it's got to be a personal responsibility thing of knowing that you're reading fiction and looking up things to know if it's true or not. You know, I read those books when I was in college and they were fun. And I was traveling to Europe at the time and it was cool to be like, oh, this is where, you know, he talked about these steps. It was fun, but I didn't think it was real. So, and I think you guys get at this on your website as well with your teaching people how to consume information and what kind of information to trust. I feel like that's more of a moral implication that we need to think about in our society. Just to be clear, I'm not arguing for the burning of Dan Brown's books. I know, it's a good talking point. On anything other than taste grams, but there's... But just, you know, trying to draw this back to pop culture, I think it has maybe been underappreciated how much of the pop culture in the 90s and early 2000s kind of laid a general openness to these kinds of thoughts in the popular imagination. Thanks to Mel Gibson and Julia Roberts. That was one of my favorite movies when I was a kid. Conspiracy Theory. Did you guys ever see that? I didn't see that. I believe it was 1997. That was the first, you know, when I was a kid and I watched that, I was like, ooh, what does this mean? And he was a very sympathetic character. Mel Gibson plays a guy who everybody thinks is crazy. But of course, he's been experimented on and they tried to like wipe his brain of it, but he still knows and he's very careful about everything. And eventually the whole case is just busts wide open because of him. So it would be interesting to see, you know, if conspiracy theories became more widespread after that big release. I know that they've always been around. Mel took this really big stretch where he, as a character, he thought that Jews were running the world, whereas the man, certainly not. (laughs) The fact that we both forgot that, Brian, there's probably something at work. It was probably a bad movie, but this was before Mel Gibson was known as a bad guy. I want to just make a prediction as a my way of wrapping up here that I look, there's already a TV show that came out called The Deep State that was a British drama. But I was picturing a sitcom. I'm hoping this is a self-fulfilling prophecy. I want a sitcom called Deep State that just mocks this whole idea by having a bunch of bumbling bureaucrats attempt to coordinate things and it always going terribly wrong. Because the Deep State wants you to think they're bumbling. Exactly. That's a necessary stage in in the man's way of uh, putting down suspicions about the man. Well, thank you, Al. Any last thoughts here? No, no, I'm just thinking of ways to pitch that show because it sounds great. Illuminati. It's interesting that we didn't get around to talking about much specific popular culture. I had some notes about The Crucible, but that's about as far as I I don't know if that still counts as popular culture anymore. Probably not. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you for keeping us on track. That was great. We don't normally have guests who do that. So that was fabulous. Right. It was a good conversation. You're a good conversationalist, Al. All right. Well, so long, Al. Thanks, listeners. Thank you very much. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.